Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to uh, Greenwashed on Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, remember to keep giving that lovely feedback, uh, warts and all, actually. We don't mind um, on 2057 or uh, emails on inbox at realitycheck.radio. Now, it's not often we get people jump from out of the woodwork um, that are passionate, energetic on a specific subject. But recently we were given a name of a gentleman who lives in or near, near Christchurch who actually has done a whole lot of research on um, climate change, global warming, global boiling, you name it, he's done it. And he, he has no reason to do it. It's just turned into a um, a hobby horse of his. And I guess you would argue that uh, because it's in the, in the public sphere so much and because of his background, he has decided that he's just got to do something. His name's Ian McIntosh. He's a former Queenslander living in Christchurch, got a degree in rural technologies. And I think his interest seemed to be piqued when he found out that Dr. Patrick Moore was a co-founder of Greenpeace, had something in common with people like us. Um, and so Ian's decided to uh, do a whole project. It's about 70 slides. Um, I'm sure he's available to do clubs and uh, and the like if you want to have him along as your guest speaker. Uh, talking about the myth, you know, it's almost the mystique and mythology of um, climate change, global warming, global boiling. So welcome, Ian. We're really happy to have you on um, Greenwashed. Uh, I know you've put a lot of effort into this, and I know you've had some international class well, you know, recognize scientists say, "Yep, this is good. Good to go." So happy to have you on, and um, yeah, what what was the motivation? Apart from all the stuff I've just sort of said, did you have any other motivations? I mean, ruminant agriculture, for instance. Yeah, well, uh, well, thank you, Donna and Jasper. It's a real privilege to be on on with you. I think this is just a, such a worthy cause and an important fight that we're involved in. And uh, and and after all, th this is basically a, a fight about truth. And I think over my forty plus years of involvement in in applying science to agriculture and, and working for employers who expect a return on their investment in my salary, it's important that you uh, you tell the truth or discover the truth more times than not, otherwise you won't have a job. Mm. So uh, truth's become very, very important to me and obviously in the agricultural sciences it, it's very important to me and of course fascinating. But What's prompted this is that when we came to the South Island, uh, I'm married a New Zealander and we came to the South Island and took the children over to the west coast to show them the glaciers and having been brought up in northern australia of course uh ice was not something that that i saw in a natural state so we went over to fox glacier and as we drove off the main road uh, up to the glacier face i couldn't believe that here were all these markers sitting on the road showing where the ice had been in living memory and uh i thought wow that that's moved a lot that's retreated a lot so I store that in my mind, and then when we get to the car park, uh, where you look across at a place called Cone Rock, um, you know, there was this big plaque, and I decided to take some photos because um, it's just one of those things that struck me that there was some history here that I needed to recall at some point in the future. 
And um, and of course, Al Gore had come along in the meantime and put out his book, and and I I, I didn't get engaged with that a lot because uh, I was a young dad and I had plenty on my plate, and you leave that fight up to other people, particularly when it's in America. So uh, I, I left that for a wee while, and then I realised this was getting closer and closer, and I happened to stumble across an article on, on YouTube one day uh, with Patrick Moore talking, and I thought, mm, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard as often as the case that there are very, very smart people who, whose opinions are suppressed. And, uh, and so I was pretty naive about the skullduggery that was happening, really. And uh, so I decided to do some digging and came across some other people and I thought, well, maybe there's something into this. So I decided to go and, and look at things like the amount of ice that's in Antarctica, for example. And, and I could not believe it was not in any way consistent with what we were hearing on the news. Mm. And uh, so yeah. I thought, well, Ian, just do due diligence like you've done with every other science challenge that's come your way over the last 40 odd years. Um, you know, anybody that's involved and takes agriculture seriously realises that there's a lot of knowledge and understanding to be gained if you're going to do justice. And uh, so this was no different. So I decided to, uh, to get stuck in. My wife um, found it incredibly frustrating that I was so passionate about something. But I, I smelled a big rat and uh, realised that uh, as a grandfather I, I, and a father, obviously, I, I needed to do something about it that utilised my skill set. So I dug in and, uh, and I, I've produced this collation of uh, a compilation of, a, of, a, of basically information that I have found amazing how it just totally contradicts the garbage that not only are we being told on, on, in the media, but our kids and grandkids are being taught and it's appalling. So um, I, I'm afraid uh, I'm in for the scrap. And uh, I'm not backing down, and uh, I'm doing my darndest and, and trying to assist wonderful people like you to do the same. So um, it's lovely to be able to, to share my passion like that and have other people enjoy it. And it's fair to say that, that my wife now understands why I'm scrapping. <laughs> Good work. We, we love people who scrap. I, and you're not just like uh, your wife. I have a long-suffering husband <laughs> who has seen me go from, you know, just wanting to be a wife or mom to getting behind him and farming and then slowly going, nah, something more needs to be done. This thing is going down to the gurgler faster yeah. than, you know, we can deal with it. But it is not just the rural people, is it, Ian? Yeah. Around you in Christchurch, your new road corridors, your new biking lanes. Mm. Helen Clark Foundation currently doing seminars across the country about spongy, spongy cities that can absorb the rainfall expected. This is not just a farming issue anymore. And that's what I want to make clear to our listeners. It is not, is it? No, no, I know. But And it's coming home to roost, you know. I was talking to a gentleman today who's, who's a very, very smart man in, in Christchurch. And uh, and he said, I, I know something's wrong, but I can't put my finger on it. And I said, Well, let me help you. And uh, and and he just could not believe what what he was hearing. In fact, he was quite overwhelmed. He said, Look, Ian, you better stop now. I don't think I can handle any more. But the fact is, it's real. Mm. And, uh, it, it's coming. It's come to New Zealand, and it, it's so it's so big a deal that we've got no option. Um, but to fight it, and and the tool is we just simply got to share the truth. The key is how do we do it, and mm -hmm. and that's driven me to produce those 
slide, that slideshow, because uh, a picture tells a thousand words. And uh, I don't need to say a lot. The slides say it all. I and mean, then people go away and feel that they know they've been lied to. And and yeah. we, we don't not like being lied to. And uh, we teach our kids not to lie. And uh, so we've got to help them to see for themselves that they've been lied to. And uh, so that's what I'm endeavouring to do. It's interesting. Uh, 20-odd years ago, I thought the man uh, hockey stick was something to be concerned about. Um, uh, and and then uh, for several years, I was thinking there's something a bit fishy here, but was never quite sure. I mean, I stood out on the sides thinking this is just wrong. Farming doesn't need to be this compliant on any of the stuff. It's all a bit screwy. And it took till um, about six or seven years ago to realise that it, it was um, pretty much a con job. But anyway, I take my hat off to the fact that you've put all this effort into developing this, this show that you can, as I said, um, you're willing to go out and uh, inform other people about, but you've entitled it CO2, A Man's Essential Friend. Mm. And that's the nub of it, isn't it? It's often been the bogeyman, CO2, something that is the fertilizer of life and something that if you don't exhale uh, as a human being, um, it's not pleasant. You're likely quite dead. So let's rip into um, some basics. What's the atmospheric composition made up of um, and what component of that is CO2? Well, isn't it interesting that if you were to go and ask, and I know that there are some very informed people that don't have a clue what that is, oh. and, and and then when you go and look it up, you think, wow, th this is so so stark. So essentially, you know, on a volume basis, our atmosphere is is predominantly about seventy eight percent nitrogen and, and around twenty two percent oxygen, and and uh, and of course argon's a, a big contributor, which I hadn't didn't have a clue about until I started to get into this. But our CO2 is about 0.042, about 0.0417, about that uh, on a percent basis, and you convert that into ppm and you get about 417. Now, those are very, very small figures. But what, what's absolutely amazing about this is that tiny little bit of gas does so much. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, a, it's, a miracle, it's a miracle molecule. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about, the damage this thing does, I'm afraid there's no damage that I can find that it does. It's absolutely essential for for us and for the for the for the earth, and that's why I call it man's essential friend. It is no, uh, there's no doubt about it. And so, you know, it, the, the discussion is that it's raised up from a, a low of 280 parts per million to 417 parts per million, and. Um, the world's frying. I mean, yeah, Antonio Guterres a couple of weeks ago stood on the podium um, and and harangued the world and said, "We're now in the global boiling." Yeah. You know, what's happened in the a period of of two eighty two to four seventeen is not much warming. There is warming, but not much. Um, what is the dominant greenhouse gas? Well, it's 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 water vapor, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, and 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 even if you go and take a situation without clouds, of course, clouds are by far the biggest greenhouse gas. But water vapor, um, if you took water vapor um, and and uh, and stacked it against the other, well, it's by far the biggest greenhouse gas. But the thing is, without those greenhouse gases, you know, we, we'd have an average of minus nine degrees, uh, mm -hmm. and and we'd all uh, freeze. And my kids used to love that that show. Um, you know, cool runnings, and and there's a standard saying: it, it freeze the Rastafarian nanas off. 
and and we all know what that means. And the fact is that as an as an Australian, you know, I had no idea what a frost was in, until I was about eighteen. And um, so I know that minus nine would absolutely destroy me, and and fifteen point five is the temperature that that we average now with those greenhouse gases. So they're all vital, thanks to water vapor, and and CO two contributes a little bit. But you know, I had no idea that that little bit of CO two it's the first fifty parts per million, which does the majority of the warming. And so when when you look at the, the information, and I dare say the IPCC uh, understands all this. It, it's not as if... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, my, my source is, is Professor Happer, um, but you know, it, the IPCC knows this, but they don't want to talk about it. So the first 50 parts per million, you know, does the majority of it, and then when you double, well, in other words, let, let's put some figures on the table. Most people would not understand that the amount of... The radiant heat that leaves our planet um, per square meter is is close on 400 watts per square meter. Now that's 400 watt light bulbs. You know to put that into everyday language. So that's how much heat would leave our planet if we had no greenhouse gases. Now, when you go and put greenhouse gases in there, it prevents 87 watts from leaving Earth. So that's a warming effect of 87 watts per square meter. And then the first 50 watts per square meter, well, that warms at another 20 watts per square meter, all right? Mm. Now, interestingly, if you go from 50 parts per million to 100 parts per million of CO2, it only warms the planet by 3 watts per square meter. And then you double it again from 100 to 200, it only warms it by another 3 watts per square meter. And then go from... Yeah, 100 to 200, 3 watts per square metre, 200 to 400, 3 watts per square metre, 400 to 800 is 3 watts per square metre. It's the same effect as when you go and paint your barn, when you've got new wood or, or an old barn, you go and paint it red, and then you go and put another coat of paint on, another coat of red on, on it. it. All you're doing is, is making it, it, it redder, but it's the first coat of red paint that's done the work, and every other subsequent coat doesn't change much it's that's a good analogy actually and so um you're talking about saturation effectively in that first percent and uh, it's commonly talked about but gee try to get that through the politicians heads is quite difficult let alone um jasper and i are farmers um our industry groups we just we just can't get them to understand this and it beggars belief why they don't want to be um more uh understanding of it so that's um you talked about William Happer, Professor William Happer. I mean, his and and William Van Weingarten, their papers have been uh out. The one that uh captivated my attention was 2019. And of course, the argument is oh, it's not peer-reviewed. And it's the one where they talked about how nitrous oxide and, and CH4 were so irrelevant that not even worth um observing. And then, of course, we've got a nitrous oxide paper of 2022 that has been peer-reviewed. So the people that says, uh, yeah, you've got to argue that people didn't want it to be peer-reviewed because it was too much of a cut-through. Mm. Uh, so, sorry, Jasper. No, no, and I'm, what I'm thinking is, you know, our industry bodies are talking about the taxing methane and nitrous oxide. This is coming in the urban space. You will have now councils grappling, the ones that have been told you need to go to net zero, 
them grappling with their effluent ponds, their wastewater treatment plants, their landfills. Mm -hmm. We are going to be tying ourselves up into pretzels, into knots mm -hmm. for absolutely no end. And the way I see your presentation, Ian, it's the physics that's the dominant science here, which is very precise. Mm -hmm. The whole country is on a decarbonization bandwagon and they never tell us what's it going to cost from 407 parts per million, what are we going to bring it down to and how much is it going to reduce the temperature by? How can you spend our, our kids, our grandkids' inheritance, their entire lives worth of productivity mm. on a pipe dream? And yet here we are. Well, the problem is, Jasper, and as you'll see uh, in, in my slideshow, that we've got nothing to do with this carbon dioxide. <laughs> It, it, it is coming out of solution. That that's what's happening. And the, and the history, um, you know, recent history. The the fantastic thing is there are eyewitness accounts that go back to the 1750s, and and we saw what was happening with ice places like Glacier Bay, and we've seen since. Um, well, I think the earliest recording of sea level was was around the 1820s, 1830s, but um, at a place called the Battery in uh, in new york they've been doing it since about 1855 and the sea level rise has been constant mm. right back then despite the fact that since the the um, industrial revolution in 1760 to about 1850 we've increased the amount of co2 that we've released the atmosphere burning you know coal and and oil and gas we've increased that by uh, 120,000 percent mm. 1200 fold we've increased the discharge of carbon and its equivalence to the atmosphere by that big at 1200 fold and yet it hasn't made any difference to the rate of sea level rise it's made no difference to temperature maximum temperature but interestingly the minimum temperature has been increasing now in canterbury when we came to canterbury uh, there's a gentleman that lived ne near us and uh, he, he recently died just before his 100th birthday he told me that he saw icebergs coming down the Rakai Gorge when he was a kid. Now, when I shared that at a uh, forum down at Lincoln University where, where they were promoting the narrative, uh, people didn't believe me. But the fact is, he said, look, I'm telling you, Ian, this man actually was was, was a prominent uh, agriculturalist involved in sheep breeding, etc. Um, but he said, Ian, I, I'm no idiot. I tell you, I saw ice coming down as icebergs. The point is, that when we arrived down in the South Island from the North Island, uh, we used to be able to walk on ice on the puddles. Mm -hmm. And you talk to any Cantabrian who grew up here, they'll tell you that the ice used to be that thick on, on the puddles that, that you know they could jump on it and it wouldn't break it as kids. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that it's not nearly as cold now. Mm -hmm. So definitely the winters are getting warmer, but the maximums aren't getting any hotter. And you go to Fresno in California, they've been keeping temperature records since back before the in, you know, late 1800s. The temperature hasn't, maximum temperature hasn't gone up, but the minimums have definitely gone up, just like mm -hmm. they have Canterbury, and it's trend right across America, because they've got a lot of excellent temperature data. So why is it that people talk about the temperature's going up. What they should be saying is the average is going up, but it's not the maximums that are going up, it's the minimums. So the heat waves that hit America happened back in the 1930s. Mm. 
it's not it, the, the records aren't being broken over there so the maximums aren't getting hotter what we've got to look at is the minimums and uh, recently i was giving a talk and a, and a retired farmer said to me he said ian we know there's climate change um because we've now got weeds growing in the south island that used to grow in the north island well that's true if the winters aren't as harsh they will come to the south island but plants are restricted in their growth not by the maximums but by the minimums and the same thing happens with insects so farmers will be seeing evidence of climate change for sure, but it's not it's not man-made. And the fact is that when the ice, when you go back to the 1750s in Glacier Bay, um, up up near the Arctic Circle, and you can go via cruise, you know, cruise liners go in there now to see the see mm. the glaciers. Well, the ice was uh, out into icy strait from Glacier Bay. So as you approach Glacier Bay, you, you go in through the mouth from Icy Strait into the bay. Well, the ice extended out into Icy Strait from Glacier Bay in 1750. And some of that ice was 1,200 metres above sea level. You know, and within about 40 years, it had retreated inside Glacier Bay. And by 1880, by far the majority of the ice had retreated. And had the disappeared. between then and now is tiny compared to what happened between 1750 and 1880. And, and those were eyewitness accounts. And a guy called Vancouver was the mariner. Vancouver happened to be one of those that recorded. So that's data recorded in living memory. Now, the other interesting thing is uh, what used to happen uh, with the Thames. The Thames used to freeze from about 1670 um, on, onwards till about the early 1800s. And they used to have ice fairs on, uh, on the Thames. And there are paintings of it. And but then they they had their last one in about eighteen fourteen to eighteen fifteen somewhere there, and it specifically states in the records it's because the weather was warming and the ice wasn't strong enough to have their ice fairs, and and yet prior to that there were instances where the ice extended out for two miles into the English Channel, so we're going back here into you know a period and they call it the Little Ice Age and and there are paintings of it you know we have eyewitness accounts. So they record a warming climate way back then. And, and of course, when you record the sea level rise uh, as close to that point as you can, and, and as I said before, in, in New York at the Battery from 1850, 1855 onwards, it's a steady rise in sea level. So something was happening way back then. And I would argue that all we're seeing now is that the, the the homeostasis, which is you know in balance, when when a person's healthy, they're in homeostasis. The world is returning back to homeostasis after the little ice age, and everything that we see around us supports that. There are multiple places around the world that the uh, national uh, what's it NOAA National Oceanic and a Atmospheric Administration, you know I think they're a, they're an official body from America and American government. You know, these guys have been recording sea level rise all around the earth um, for quite some, for a long time. You know, as I said, some of it's back to about 1820. And they're finding a linear increase despite exponential output of, of carbon. So, um, you know, there are a lot of signals to say there's something definitely wrong with, with the narrative. So, hence why I started digging. And, and what's interesting is, you know, photosynthesis is something we take for granted every day. 
and 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 of course the thing about photosynthesis um for, for people who who do their gardens they'll know their plants are green and, and they'll know why well some might know why it's green but when you have a look at the photosynthetic pathway no there are six molecules of co2 combined with six molecules of water and and 2.87 megajoules of energy are used to convert those into one molecule of glucose and six molecules of oxygen. Now, without that pathway, we'd starve and we'd suffocate. And what's interesting is that the more CO2 you put in on the left-hand side of that equation, the more glucose you produce. And glucose enters the biochemical pathways that make life. That's how carbon dioxide gets into life. And and we are basically, our bodies are 18.5% carbon. And that's how it gets into us. And all life is absolutely, totally reliant on CO2 for carbon to end up in the biochemical pathways of life. And that's why when you expose plant life to more CO2, we get increased yields. And and even the FAO, you know, they, they know, in fact, there was some research that was done you know, back in 1993, and, and they compiled 156 plant species and found that doubling CO2 provided an average growth increase of 37%. Now, if you want to do some back-of-the-envelope analyses, a 37% increase um, in production means that if you go from 280 parts per million back as Don alluded to back at the time of the Industrial Revolution, up to 560 parts per million, that means you need 37% less land to produce the same amount of biomass. Mm-hmm. That Now, that, that is stunning, and that, that's why people down here in Canterbury pump in 1,200 ppm into their greenhouses to grow tomatoes. Yep. yep. And we are not scared and of the carbon then. We are not afraid of venturing into our greenhouses no bring around there no problem and you know how does one come to this conclusion that carbon is evil you said in the beginning it is 0.04 percent of the atmosphere rounding it off to two digits that is four parts out of every ten thousand yeah. 0.04 percent so what makes the other nine thousand nine hundred and ninety six parts is my question and how do you convince me that all the others are irrelevant, take care of these four parts out of 10,000 and the climate will be stable. Yeah. Poppycock. And yeah, yet, uh, it's mythology. That's, that's what they teach children. This is uh, part of my kids' science curriculum. In fact, very this morning, and that's why I the figures rolled off my tongue that easily, Ian, because yeah. uh, I was speaking th- about this to my daughter, yeah. that, you know, it's 0.04% and, you know, can you do decimals? Yes, yeah. I said. So if you had if you had to cook something which had ten thousand different bits and you yeah. only put those four ingredients, what do you think would happen? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense, mummy. That's and right. Even a child can understand that. That's right. And I and I think that's where we've got to fight this fight, Jasper. We we've got to learn how to take simple information like that and put it into everyday language so that even your children can work it out. And and I had an instance with my son. Uh, when he was at school and one day he came home and he said dad you know i've been doing biology today and and i think you're right and and that was one of that that was a real joy to me he, he doesn't recall the instance but i do and uh and and that taught me a whopping great lesson and that is to communicate information simply 
to, to to everybody in such a way that others can see it for themselves and then you don't have to keep convincing them. They end up convincing other people and that's our challenge. I just hope we've got enough time to do it. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, we've had um, Professor Ian Plymer on a few times on RCR and he has just written a trilogy of books, some for junior children, you know, under teens and um, teenagers and adults. And he's put it in the parlance that is required for those age groups. And that's how it's got to be. But isn't it incredible? I'm going to repeat sort of what Jess Breit's just saying, demonizing something that is so beneficial for the planet. Um, how did it, how did it get so much traction? I, I, I still can't understand how 120 politicians breathing out CO2 in the beehive can't understand that, um, it's a good thing. Uh, I know that in, in the beehive, they might have, uh, what would it be? Um, what would the CO2 concentration of oh. beehive be without some air conditioning? It'll be t- tens of thousands of parts oh, well, per million, wouldn't it? Well, well, we know 40,000 parts per million is coming out of our mouth as we talk. And, and I dare say when some of those politicians get going, um, they'd probably produce more. But I, I'll tell you what, if I had five minutes with a politician and, and tried to tell him this, I reckon I'd go from 40,000 parts per million to 100,000 parts per million because I'm just so angry about they're, they're, they're well. They're not. They're not ignorant. I just don't think no. that that they've had the time to sit down, and that's where somehow we, we've got to create enough people who are singing the song that one day they'll realise, hey, I, I should give somebody some time. Well, and isn't that interesting? How we've got mainstream media who every time, and it's every night, basically in the news, there's something about climate change. It doesn't matter how you cut cut it, they'll find something. But they always come up with a picture of a chimney stack um, belching out um, clouds of steam. But they think it's, they make it almost a black tinge. So it's it's clouds of, clouds of coal dust is what they're trying to put out there. It's just obscene. Well, that's right. But what's interesting, Don, is, um, and, and, you know, I stress this in, in my talks, that um, when we go and breathe out 40,000 parts per million CO2 and there's about 417 thereabouts in the atmosphere, can you see it? And, uh, you know, those are the sorts of questions we've got to say to people, well, no, I can't see it. Well, how come they're blaming all of these chimneys um, for belching out all of the so-called pollution? Well, if there's dust in it, you know, if there's particulate matter in it, okay, well, that's pollution. But the majority of the stuff we get shown on TV is simply steam. Well, go and boil your pot or boil a billy and have a look at what comes out of that. You know, just do some basic physics. Great teaching opportunity for kids. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I I just hope that uh, we learn the technique fast enough. And I think our children can become our greatest allies with some very simple physics experiments in the kitchen. So... Perhaps you, uh, we, we should go back to uh, what's earlier in your presentations about uh, William Happer and Van Wingarden's um, mm. assessments. They've done some great work. And the kicker for me was when I learned that uh, the models that have come out from uh, various outfits, um, they were models of each gas in isolation, each greenhouse gas in isolation in a dry atmosphere in a laboratory environment. They weren't in a mixed atmosphere um, with of, you know, as Happer and Co. Uh, modelled and then uh, observed in a real mixed atmosphere. So the key key is, is this your understanding, Ian? The key is the effect of these um, five main greenhouse gases in a mixed environment is um, way, way overstated because yeah. of their because of their testing. 
Yeah, well, and, and that's absolutely right, Don. But what I find amazing is that if you want to go and do proper science, you come up with a theory, you go out and, and you model it, and uh, you do your best at modelling it, and uh, and then you come up with your conclusion, and then you go and expose it to some real analyses. Now, this is one of the things that really convinces me that these two guys know what they're talking about because they went and predicted what the uh, amount of radiant heat would be uh, over the Sahara at, what, about 40-odd degrees. Um, then they also did it... Um, over the Mediterranean, and they also did it over Antarctica, and they produced yep. three totally different curves of the of the frequency at which this energy was radiated back to the atmosphere. And then they did it with a uh, a satellite, and and they're mirror images of one another. You know, the, these guys are very very competent, and the fact that the IPCC can't can't disagree with them, it's just they're just not saying so, is appalling. Mm. And so. Looking at um, that data and then flicking over to um, CH four and um, N two O on that uh, on the I, I, the frequency curves, yeah. you know, even doubling CO two, doubling um, nitrous oxide, doubling CH CH uh, four, you can hardly see the difference. I know, I know. No, it, it's appalling. And Look, so, I, I, I had no idea. It was that start that the, the true evidence just utterly destroys the narrative that's out there. So so why would you think that this, in fact, all recent administrations in New Zealand since probably 2002, in fact, 1998, have been trying to demonise ruminant agriculture in this country? Why do you think that is? I think they've got a motive. It, because the way I see it is, the way it's been sold to New Zealanders, we're the bogeyman, we're the problem. Yeah. Um, and in fact, so it basically takes half the heat, that, to use that term in inverted comments, off the uh, rest of society. Because well, if, the, if the full notion, if, if CO2 was a problem, and I, I accept we we debate that, um, all of it would be into CO2 equivalents and it would all go inside the mums and dads' costs and industry's cost of this country and and ruminant animals would be off the hook. So what I'm saying is it looks like they have a, a way to sort of say, let's put 50% of it onto the the in the, the, the animals and their owners that can't defend themselves. Yeah. But and, I, would, I, I would say, Don, why are we even talking about penalties? Uh, uh, in mm. fact, I the question is why are we even dignifying this whole debate knowing what we know that's that's another angle isn't it why why do we even dignify the politics of this when yeah. clearly there is no need but but that's the game we have to be in we have to we have to push back on this stuff hmm so it's it's interesting uh, yeah this the size of the methane pie and the nitrous oxide pie in the New Zealand uh, sense is so minuscule it's it's not worth talking about, is that? No, it, it's so small. And I ask when I speak to groups, I, I get the youngest people in the group to come up because they've got the best eyes and see if they can see the difference. And and some of them look at me to, to say, well, where's the line that you're talking about? Is there is there a difference? The blip is so small that yes. people just can't see the impact. Um, and, 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 and when you're talking to folk and showing them this, you know, the scales come off their eyes. And, uh, and that's that's one of the real motivations for me 
is to allow people to have a glimpse at, at what I've been saying. And uh, and, and that's why I, I, I talk to groups, because it's just an exciting experience for me. Yes. Yeah. So, listeners, we are talking about these models by Happer and William Weinbin Garden, which have proven so accurate that the output from their models and the output from satellites completely coincide. We are not able to see any difference. And yet, we, in New Zealand, we have the same people, Susie Wiles and co., the ones who did the COVID modeling for us. They are the same ones that are now very conveniently just eased into climate modeling. Isn't it amazing? I mean, beginning to think consultancy and modeling are possibly the most lucrative, or in fact, the only professions left in New Zealand where you can make any money. Yeah. Just keep out, you know, pushing out research with more and more outlandish models. Forget to mention that carbon dioxide is just four parts out of every 10,000 and project decarbonization. Yeah, yeah. But what, what's sad in all of this, Jasper, is that as farmers, We've got to work with truth every day. Yeah. If you go and put water in your diesel, you know you're going to have a problem. Mm. Um, but people in the in academia who are getting paid out of our salaries and, and our wages, they can put effectively, I know it's metaphorical, but they can go and put water in diesel and be forgiven for it. Mm. You know, mm. that's just appalling. Um, I mean, and, none and, of them will ever will lose any money and there'll be uh, farmers this year close to well over half uh, you know, dairy farming, and I, I would say even sheep and beef fortunes are dwindling. Who yeah. could actually end up working the whole year for very little to show for it? Yeah. Yeah, How yeah. often does that happen to these modelers, these bureaucrats? Yeah. Well, well, that's true. But Jasper, you know, I often wondered how do we take this message to the urban folk? And and it yeah. dawned on me not long ago. Every house that's built in New Zealand is built on a block of dirt that once had trees on it. So we've permanently destroyed the forests in those parts mm. of the world, right? Okay. Mm. Where where does where do all the ablutions go from from houses? You know, they basically go into a municipal treatment system for the majority of the country. Mm. And why is it then that farmers seem to get so much focus put on them for mm. using a block of dirt and, and having some overland flow? And let's face it, um that there definitely have been farmers over the years. Yep, we've been poor operators. Good stewards, right? Mm. But there are people in town that aren't good stewards either. You know, there's stuff that goes down the drains that should never go down the drains. Mm. Um, but it's the TV crews who go out to farm that that try to bash the farmer. But it needs to be realised that without agriculture, this country's got no future. And while farmers do need to do due diligence and do it properly, and and my experience is that farmers, good farmers, just love working together and solving problems and working in a, in a conjunction with regional councils. Historically, you know, I, 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 I know for myself and I've seen other farmers do it too. Farmers love to work with good people to solve problems to, to make their farms more sustainable. That has been my experience in over 40 years and I'm sure yours is the same, Don. Just yeah, it is. It, it, it is, and it's interesting. Um, I, I remember doing radio interviews way back 15 years ago, and I, one was on Radio New Zealand, and I said, oh, the difference is everything farmers does is um, like going naked in public, but in urban environments, it's flush and forget, and it's under tarmac, and it goes to a tank somewhere off-site, um, and that's the difference. And, of course, Ian, we do have the RMA, which is a bit of a, a problem. Yeah. Um, everyone 
in terms of point source discharge, so stuff out the end of a pipe, it was pretty much industrial and urban um, sort of issues uh, to be to be solved. But that wasn't good enough for the regulator. They needed to have a catch-all, so they then uh, attacked on a cumulative effect. Um, so that means if you're at the headwaters of the waterway to the sea, you're all, all in this together. All guilty. You're all guilty or not. And yeah. so that's the catch-all, and that's that's where we are today, sadly. But I agree. Um, no one should be wantonly doing stuff to their environment that they know can be improved or done better. No one should do that. And I don't see farmers um, you know, desecrating their, their own um, land wantonly. Uh, yeah, the environment does throw a lot at us in terms of weather patterns and stuff, but um, you just suck it up. But, uh, of course, those people with the cameras and digital cameras made it quite easy to um, live stream stuff nowadays. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a very good parable that every man should consider, and that's uh, only do to other people what you'd have them do to you. Yeah. And um, you know, we we aren't doing it. We're not doing justice to our future if we don't treat farmers fairly. And and that's that's not what's happening. And it's just an appalling situation. Well, and, and you know, we've sorry, Jasper, interrupting. We um we've had many um shows now where we're talking about our farmer representatives who just won't front this stuff at a hard edge they just won't and it's you wonder what it is they say oh but in the marketplace we need to do this to get our get our products into the marketplace well actually i don't think that's genuine i think it's it's been brainwashed into um our sustainability offices and our marketing offices and all sorts of things at these cooperatives and you think why do we employ them they they're not they're not being genuine no, no, no. Look, the world, uh, what we feed, something like 40 million people with our exports, correct? Oh, and I think we, we could probably feed double that if we made them uh, the right calorific intake instead of well, well, that, that, over overeating. Yeah. No, that, that's exactly right, true. But the thing is, we do have a, there's a market out there that wants yeah. our food, and, and I, I don't think we should be prostituting ourselves to everybody else's criteria. But, you know, some, some of the revelations that I think the public need to know about is that the, the deserts, you know, the CSIRO in Australia, they have measured the greening of the dry areas of the planet, and they know that they're getting greener with increasing CO2. Now, I would argue that CO2 hasn't come from us. Uh, it, it's actually come from the oceans as the world slowly warms after a little ice age and CO2 comes out of solution, and that's very easy to show. Um, so that extra CO2 is actually increased our agricultural outputs around the world and and the deserts particularly the fringes of the deserts are getting greener and and that's that's csiro in australia so and the reason for that is of course the the little pores in the, in this in the leaf um, the stomata um they don't need to stay open for as long to get their their quota of co2 and of course the co2 goes in water comes out well this, if the little stomata aren't open as long that means they lose less moisture and as a result, these plants can now handle the arid areas better, and that's why it's getting greener. Now, uh, mm. and that's one thing we need to, I think, emphasize: climate change has always happened. The Sahara. We I've watched documentaries, mostly uh, homeschooling my children, about uh, these caves deep within the desert, where there's paintings of creatures which are no longer there within the Sahara. The Sahara was green at one time. Yeah. I had someone recently mentioned to me, oh, but, you know, 
uh, climate change is definitely happening here because uh, I see kingfish down here that that weren't here before. I said, yeah, and it has always happened. I said, you know, there were dinosaurs also here at one point, and that changed. No, no, no. But we must be seen to be doing something, and that's when it rankles. That where is the cost benefit analysis in all of this for a country that right now? The June 23 quarter uh, figures, benefits data from Ministry of Social Development show that our food parcels, because they show the June snapshot of last six years, right from 2017. Our biggest grants right now are on food and housing. And the food one have more than tripled. That's where we are right now, facing food insecurity in what is supposed to be a first world country. We have long, endless waiting lists for our hospitals. We have had people who have missed cancer treatments, more serious, I mean, pressing needs and whatnot. And this is what we are doing. We have hospitals now reporting their emissions, how much, uh, how many boilers have changed, gone from coal to this. And that's that's when it strikes me, this is criminal. This is not just unconscionable or, you know, wasting public money. This is criminal. And Ian Plymer put it very well in his uh, book that I'm still not got through because it's such a tome, nearly 400 pages, Green Murder. Right. It is murder. Right. And yeah. it's time we call it out for what this is. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And that's what we're all endeavouring to do. And I think as things get tougher and tougher, I'm hoping that an increasing number of people will be prepared to listen to an alternative narrative. Mm. And I think that's where we, we've got to have what you folk have got with all your replays. Because it's so easy to say to somebody, look, just go online. You can go back and look up any, any um, you know, replays on any with any particular theme that you want, and uh, and and play it while you drive to, you know, to work. Um, that, that's what I'm doing. And uh, it, you, you people have got stunning folk on. It's just so easy to. It's almost like just just handing over an envelope and saying, look, have a read of that. You only read, need to read three words. It's called realitycheck.radio. And just go and type that in, and there you are. You got Don and Jaspreet, and uh, you know, wonderful stuff. It's just such a wonderful resource, and we've just got to keep, got to be bold enough to tell people. It's that. What it's that s- simple. It's that. What you said in the beginning, scrappy, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah, yeah. what it is about. You know, one has to keep. At times, it does get repetitive. We keep repeating the same things, but we have to make the people who are in the you know positions of power positions of influence where they're making these decisions never be able to come back and say we didn't know so you were told that you were told that on multiple occasions it's been the same thing over the last three years of the medical insanity and it will be the same thing over the climate issue i i know the newspaper mainstream narrative goes like oh the covid deniers are not in climate deniers no actually we've not it is the critical thinkers have remained critical thinkers and time and again, pushing the same message out, no matter how repetitive, will put these people, you know, in a position, never be able to get away from sort of just saying, oh, but we never knew. This is what our model said. No, you knew. You yeah. chose to ignore it. Right, Don? And we have like we literally have written proof, written statements of these people choosing yeah. to willfully ignore it. Yeah, yeah. But what's so easy, Jaspreet, is that the information that flies contrary to what they're telling us is just 
so uh, copious, such copious amount. For example, Antarctica. You know, here we were. If, if I went back, say, four or five years ago, uh, and we were told Antarctica shrinking, well, I I just went on and, and found a site that gave the area of the ice in in Antarctica in winter and summer, and it graphed it, and that started in 1979. And uh, so I compared 40 years of data. I compared. What, how much how much area was covered by ice in Antarctica in 1979 and then in 40 years later, so 2019. And uh, and I realised that 90% of the world's ice is in Antarctica. And I could not believe there was more in 2019 than there was in uh, 1979. And what's amazing is that the amount of ice that shrinks and grows every year is an area over twice the size of Australia. Now, as an Aussie, I once drove from Perth to Sydney. It took five days doing 600 miles, we talked about in those days. 600 miles a day, it's over 10 hours driving, right? It takes five hours to fly across Australia. Now, if you do that across Australia and, and, and up, you know, you end up with a massive amount of ice that is changing. Now, how easy is it to go and get a TV crew down there to go and find melting ice? If if it grows and shrinks by that much, they can easily go and find that ice melting. But the scandal is they tell us, they tell our kids particularly the ice is melting, but they fail to tell it that it's going to regrow. And and I know, Don, recently you did a um, one of your topics was, well, what's happening down in Antarctica right now? Well, I, I went and ran those photos to see how much the ice was changing. And I dare say every year it's a different photo because by virtue of wind, I suppose, and tides and probably volcanic activity on the western side, I understand there's a lot of volcanic yeah. activity on the western side. Um, but even this year, which which is, has shown quite a significant decline versus normal, um, you can barely see the difference when you go and compare two photographs, one from 1979 with, with this year. Yeah, there's a reduction and a significant reduction, but you can barely see it by eye. And let's face it, if it hasn't happened over 40 years, one blip's hardly going to make a difference. You know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. So uh-huh. I, I don't think there's a case to answer, quite frankly. Well, well, no, they're looking for that case to answer. They're looking for for something. And, of course, recently that that discussion was around uh, i think it even talked about the moisture in the in the atmosphere down there and uh and how the penguins were not quite being able to flap like they needed to flap okay. and dry themselves so the question that wasn't raised by uh, us on, or even in my comments on it was around perhaps there is um a huge amount of um water in the atmosphere caused by the tongan uh, volcano of 18 okay. months ago and that's now come out the discussions that I've been reading, it is, it is m- times multiple times what they originally thought in the atmosphere. But again, to me, all this is a ruse. It's yeah. uh, it's very clear that CO two is not the bogeyman of the world. CH four from our animals is not a bogeyman. N two O from um, fertilizers and uh, and and animal pee is not an issue. Uh, but we're going to spend trillions over the world to try and solve a non-problem. Yeah, mm. no, that, that's exactly right. But you know what? What is is more frightening is that when you listen to people who are who are experts in the field, like uh, Professor Happer, 
and uh, Mike, Professor Michael Kelly mm. and uh, Steve Coonan, who was Obama's chief science advisor. You know, th those guys, they don't agree with the narrative. And, and in fact, it was Professor Michael Kelly, I think it was Oxford, Oxford or Cambridge. Cambridge. Was, yeah, professor over there. And he says, we're heading into an alarming future, but it's got nothing to do with mm. climate change. I sat through a meeting here in Invercargill last year. We had uh, our climate czar, Rod Carr, come down here. And uh, number one, most of these meetings, they now no longer take live questions from the audience. You're given these, you know, uh, you have to log on to the software and you put your question. And if the, if, you know, fortune smiles on you, yours might just be asked somehow. It has never smiled upon me. But someone else is, I think they must have had an overwhelming number of similar questions there and they finally asked him rod Carr, you know people are saying that there was up to five thousand parts per million in the past and he just thundered in the room but there was one important difference that we are missing we were not there then and i thought that makes no sense most no, seems... people around the room clapped now you were talking just now about this 40-year period uh, looking at antarctica what is even 40 years? A blip of time when you look at the Earth, how long has it been here? Anything from four to six billion years, depending on what records you look at. What is 40 years or even 40,000 in, you know, four, five, six billion years of Earth's existence? How do we have, we have to reach the stage that we think we are that important that uh, we can have an impact, we can control the climate? We have now Harvard, you know, setting up with these solar dimming programs and whatnot. So there's another breed of university students, PhDs that will be coming out with also, I don't know, really flash programs to control the sun. Mm. But God, we still can't feed the world. We still can't get enough doctors in time where they are needed. But we've decided to bankrupt ourselves doing this. Yeah, that's, that's true. where the pity of it. But Jaspreet, um, they, they use the, the evidence that we've got around us today to condemn CO2. And I would argue that the evidence around us today is, is just absolutely endorsement of the value of CO2. So go back 40 years. If you can't see a trend in 40 years, they're claiming they can. If you can't see a trend in 40 years, give up. What, what's your argument about? You know, put the truth on the table. And, and if we've got academics over here that refute what Professor Happer and Professor Weingarten are saying, we'll have a public debate about it. Put the, put the evidence on it. Get the right people. We, we all deserve to know the truth. So let's facilitate the truth. And that's what I'm trying to do. But they should be getting Professor Happer and Weingarten. I know COVID, COVID stopped that, but um, mm. that's what we need to be doing. Well, that's true. And all of, all their output is available online. The stuff that we need to have out is available online. I know there's nothing better than actually having them in person and be able to face to, you know, have a face to face. The problem we've got in New Zealand is mainstream media uh, ignores this. So these sort of people like the plague. We have Dr. Dr. Tom Sheehan here recently. No mainstream media uh, coverage whatsoever. So clearly the narrative doesn't suit uh, the agenda. And of course, I'm aware that um, the Minister for Climate Change, James Shaw, does know that uh, methane, for instance, is even in the IPCC's um, AR6 report, uh, admitted, they admit that it is overstated by a factor of three to four, its severity in terms of warming. And yet the Happer and Van Wingarden papers will tell you it's overstated by significantly more, like probably uh, it's got a GWP, a global 
warming potential of less than one. So no one wants to know that. The minister does know this because it's in front of him. We know it's in front of him, but he will not acknowledge it because they're do, doing uh, the, the policy uh, that they're working on was from AR4, from what was that, Jaspreet, about 2006? 2007, yeah. Seven. So they're working on yeah. science that's what, yep. 15 years yep. old. A long time ago, and they know they know that that's uh, disingenuous, but they refuse to change. And, of course, in we've only learned in recent months that New Zealand signed up to a global methane hub, a pledge in Chile last year, with a hunt, there's now 153 countries signed into it. And our lead company in New Zealand, Fonterra, is party to it. I mean, we know all this stuff now, and it, it just it, it winds me up a lot, as you can tell. So, you know, uh, all power, I think we'll, um, we've had a lot of your time. I think we need to probably wrap this. There's a lot more we can say. You're we haven't done your 70-odd slides complete justice, but we've just about got there. But the key thing for me, in the last 25 years, if there was a green wash going on in this country, let alone the world, it's climate change. Right. And it's the, it's, it's the peak green wash. And uh, it's the name of our show. Yeah, well, this whole thing highlights that there's a bigger agenda going on. And the only way that we can change it is to have enough people, when the people rise up with evidence and say, we're not getting told the truth, then the politicians will listen. And they seem to think that they're going to go along with they, what they deem to be the majority of people who believe this narrative. Well, we've got a job to change that. Mm, and, uh, and I want to thank you, folks, for being being part of the uh, all pulling on the oars together, this canoe going in the right direction. And we've just got to keep doing it and help others to get on board. Yeah, well, we're we're grateful for your input today, and uh, we may have to get you back. Uh, let's hope we can get uh, a groundswell of uh, of people pushing the same way. Yeah, definitely. And if anybody uh, says we'd like to have that that Macintosh guy on, and uh, is he prepared to to commute? You know, we'll, we'll take the weekend and and travel to a forum yep. uh, where we can share this stuff. It's just too important. Yeah, well, I think that would be gratefully received. You just might not have any days left in your diary for the next couple of years. Well, um, that, that's fine. But before the election, I prefer to do most of it before then and help the sway <laughs> educate these guys. Uh, 100%. All yeah. right. Okay, Ian. Well, thank you very much. And um, we'll we'll be in touch, no doubt. We'll yeah, yeah, good. Uh, and, good. We, and we will share your link as best we can on our, uh, our show um, notes. Excellent. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. Time. All right. Ta-da. Just and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.